Well, let's prepare to um, spend some time in God's Word now. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we uh, just nipped into this chapter last week by looking at um, uh, verse 1, which really I think is included in the thought of uh, chapter 10's concluding um, verses there. But today we're going to be looking at, um, well, a really extremely important passage, a difficult passage. And so rather than open with a recap and, uh, and all of that that I normally do, I'm going to start today by reading the passage. Uh, we'll read the whole passage, the whole section that deals with this particular issue. But today we're only going to get through verse 6 because there's really a lot here. But I think we need to start by reading the scripture so we can at least kind of see some of the elements that we're going to be talking about. And then I'm going to spend a decent amount of time sort of getting a historical background to this before we get into this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's look at uh, verse 2 through verse 16. Beginning in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For a man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman's hair, woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, this is an extremely important section of Scripture, and we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, but the reason this is so important is because it is a, well, this passage deals with an area that has been a battleground for over 180 years. It has to do with the role of women in society. And so I'm going to just have you ladies just just to begin with, just tell you to, to bear with me. All right, we're not even going through the whole section today. We're going to have to take two weeks to do that. Because I think it's really important today that we really hear from God in terms of what was His intended purpose in all of creation and in the roles of men and women. Now, this doesn't, as we go into this, this passage doesn't necessarily limit uh, itself to the role of women in the church. Because, as you're going to see, Paul doesn't mention the church gathering. Uh, and in fact, he goes all the way back to the creation uh, order in the Garden of Eden. However, uh, this is a difficult passage. It is. Uh, and there's several reasons for that. One is Paul is dealing with a very, uh, uh, well, a situation that was a social situation that we know um, to some extent what was taking place. But we don't know uh, to, to the entire extent. Uh, we don't know the exact uh, situation in terms of the larger secular setting. And we also really don't know the exact situation in the church. How did it affect the, the church? And you add to that what's really going on in the mind of Paul, and it can be uh, difficult. But we really don't need to know all of those things. 
what we need to do is to distinguish what is cultural, okay, from what is fact in regards to God's divine revelation, um, div divine principles that he wants us to pull from that, just like we did with the previous passage, meat, sacrifice to idols, right? There's no direct correlation to us from that idea, yet did you not find the principles that we could extract from that to be incredibly valuable, important? They were, right? In fact, in fact, they're foundational in terms of our Christian liberty and what role love plays in that and all of that. So as we talk about the women's role here in, in, in society, um, it, it would be good to understand just, just uh, from our own history how some of the movements that we have seen through our society have sort of um, uh, affected that role, but also the church. Uh, to, to, be, to be clear, the, the women's liberation movement um, has accomplished a lot of good uh, for women, at least in the Western world. There's uh, many spheres where discrimination has ended, and, and women are no longer sort of treated as second-class citizens, right? And while... Uh, uh, those movements and, and feminism have had a great impact on the, the civic arena. It's, it's also had a significant impact on the religious as well. Now, just to give you a little background, feminism right, has sort of had three major movements in our history. And I just wanted to highlight something from the very first movement, which really began in the U.S., which began in the 1840s. So we're going way, way back. And there are two women that really began that movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And the, while the key focus there was to really get an amendment added onto the U.S. Constitution that would allow women the right to vote, the Bible was seen as a primary obstacle to the progress of women. In fact, Elizabeth Stanton said this, The Bible, with its fables, allegories, and endless contradictions, has been the great block in the way of civilization. So you can tell from uh, one of the founders of this early movement that she had a negative view of Scripture. In fact, her view of Genesis 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, was to see them as two contradictory versions of creation. The first one, the chapter 1, really was an account that dignified women. But the second chapter was written by a, quote, wily writer who added his account to just put women in their place. And so she sees them as two different, uh, coming from two different writers, not as coming from inspiration by God. And so you can see the Bible was a threat to their cause, and it had to be dealt with. And the Bible became a target. And one of the products of that first movement was something called the Women's Bible. And the Women's Bible was an instant bestseller. They had to do reprintings. Uh, re, uh, it was done in several languages. And it was a collaborative effort. There were several uh, contributors that went to that work. And they all had varying attitudes towards Scripture. So I'm not all even saying they all had negative attitudes. But Stanton, okay, the one that has made those comments had the lion's share of the work. Two-thirds of this woman's Bible was from her contribution. Now, I want to get you to understand what her thought was about the Bible. Listen to this. She said this, The whole foundation of the Christian religion rests on the woman's temptation and man's fall, hence the necessity of a Redeemer and a plan of salvation. Women's degradation and subordination were made a necessity. If, however, we accept the Darwinian theory that the race has been a gradual growth from the lower to the higher form of life and that the story of the fall is a myth, we can exonerate the snake, emancipate the woman, and reconstruct a more rational religion for the 19th century. So you can really see where her, her view of Scripture was. It was, it was the, the, the Scriptures, the Bible, that, that put women in this lower uh, place. Now, that Bible was very successful. Um, it was never formally endorsed by the feminist movement. You should know that. But it was successful, and it really paved the way for the second and third waves of feminism. We're currently in the third uh, wave. Uh, you add to that some of the 
the radical feminists pursued liberation from all forms of authority, um, and they attacked scripture on that basis, namely uh, uh, rejecting the authority of God and rejecting the authority of scripture. Some even went so far as to try to change the fatherhood of God and the maleness of Jesus. One such woman, Virginia Mollencott, wrote a book called Sensuous Spirituality, Out from Fundamentalism. So you can just get an idea of where she was coming from just by that title. But she decided to rewrite the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to read all the things, just the, the beginning part. So we know the Lord's Prayer, right? It starts out, Our Father who art in heaven. She wrote this, O birther, father, mother of the cosmos. You see, there was just a, an intentional desire to, to reconstruct and change what was being said, even in the prayer that Jesus himself taught the disciples. Needless to say, these movements had a tremendous impact on the church. And while those radical views do exist in churches, what you're probably more likely to find today in conservative evangelicalism is something called biblical feminism. Maybe you've heard of that. Or evangelical feminism. Uh, the the uh, official word that's used the most is egalitarianism. And the, these people would, would hold to biblical inerrancy. They would say that, yes, the Bible is without error. But they have reinterpreted scripture to say that man's headship over women was not part of God's original design. That that was a result of the fall. And so there's no such thing as authority and submission between men and women in marriage, in the church, and in other areas of society. Their banner verse tends to be Galatians 3.28. I have it for you here. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There you have it. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I would agree with that statement 100%. That's absolutely true. We are all one in Christ. The, the Bible does not teach an inequality between men and women. Uh, another important portion of, of scripture is often used. Maybe you've heard them say, heirs together of the grace of life. Men and women are heirs together of the grace of life. They're quoting 1 Peter 3, 7, but they typically fail to quote the whole verse. Let me put the whole verse up for you because the first part says this, husbands likewise dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. You see, the weaker vessel part is removed because sort of that is looked upon as a, a inequality. Now, those that look at those verses and look at those things also typically have a certain view of Peter, in this case, uh, and, and Paul, in other cases, uh, that they were sort of male chauvinists, that they had a low view of, of women, and they were just simply espousing their personal opinions or that they were just teaching culturally determined customs and not divinely revealed truth. And here's the problem with those approaches. One, it, first of all, it makes you the judge of what is divinely inspired and what is not. I've said this many times going into Corinthians that we can't approach this with saying, oh, where does Paul put his opinion and which is actually divinely revealed truth? Never do you hear just Paul's opinion. All scripture is God-breathed. We can't be the ones that determined what is God-breathed and what is just opinion. We have to approach that all Scripture is divine and therefore inerrant, therefore incapable of being wrong. The truth of the matter is this, is that the gospel was the thing responsible for emancipating women. It was society. It was the culture that sort of demeaned women. But, but, but God used men like Paul to, to show that while there is a distinction in roles, there is no distinction in spiritual life. There's no distinction in, in essence of who a man is and a woman is. No distinction in worth. No distinction in intellect or mind or will or emotion or ability or capability. Competence, right? All, all of those things, we are equal in those things. When I, um, when I am involved in premarital counseling, I often ask a couple a very honest, simple question. Do you want God's blessing on your marriage? And I've never not once had a, a couple say, no, not really, right? They always say, well, yeah, we want God's blessing upon our marriage. And I, I begin the, the whole counseling with that to say, okay, well, then you need to operate by God's rules. See, many people want God's blessing in their lives, but they don't want to operate by God's rules. And when it comes to marriage, there are rules of engagement, okay, in terms of 
roles in a marriage. And when we operate outside of those rules, we cannot expect God's blessing. We must align our lives to function under God's created order and not under man's created order. You see, man has created their own order, but we have to constantly go back to Scripture to make sure we haven't got offline. And that's kind of what we're doing today. Paul has bringing us to make sure, are we in, in line? And let me just add this, that there's a spiritual element, isn't there? I mean, Satan would love nothing more and does love nothing more than to sort of upset the divinely created order, right? I mean, look around our world today. Isn't that really what we're seeing happening? You have marriage is no longer between a man and a woman, according to God's created order, right? They've switched that. In fact, now you can determine what, whether you're a man or a woman, right? You can de- de- determine yourself what gender you want to be or if you're a gender at all. Essentially, what they're saying is you can be your own God. You are the creator. You, you choose how you want to be created. And that takes us back to the fundamental issue of Romans chapter 1. We even looked at this last week. Romans chapter 1 talked about that exchange of worship, worship that should go to God. We exchanged and chose to worship created things instead. And in verses 24 to 25 sort of give us what God did because of that, what his response was. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. You see what happened? Those who wanted that exchange, God says, fine, that's what you want. You can have that. I'll give you over to the lust of your heart. And what was the result? To dishonor their bodies among themselves. The created order began to get distorted because people didn't want to worship the creator. Now, let me just say that it is absolutely imperative that we understand and it, it adhere to the created order of things as God in, intended. We, we have to as believers. If we don't, we're, we're not really following God's plan for our lives. We're not. We're, not. We're, we're deluding ourselves. So that really brings us to the passage at, at hand. Sorry for that lengthy intro, but um, I, I think it's important. And I think here, when we, when we look at what Paul is talking about, if you remember, in, 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 in Corinthians, by chapter 7, Paul is addressing, from chapter 7 on, questions that have come from the Corinthians themselves, right? Um, they, they wrote to him about specific issues that was taking place in the church, and so Paul addressed uh, things about marriage and about singleness, uh, about divorce, and even the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Those, those all came from their questions, and from our text today, we can see that some apparently asked Paul for clarity around the issue of the submission of of women. Now, why? Well, because some of the women were, were, were walking around without the head coverings. They were praying and prophesying without the head coverings. What's the deal? What's the deal with, with that? Well, women in the Corinthian culture wore veils or they wore head coverings as a sign or a symbol of, of submission. And some uh, of these women, there had begun a women's liberation movement in Corinth. We know that there was feminism in Corinth. We don't know to what extent, but we know that they began. And um, they were sort of burning their veils, right, if you will. They were getting rid of the veils. And, um, and so you had Christian women who were getting involved in that. And think about the Christian liberty sort of uh, topic that Paul has been dealing with. Think about Christian women's reaction to that. Well, hey, I'm free in Christ too, right? I should have no burden over me, right? There shouldn't be any form of bondage, I'll, I'll burn my veil, right? I'm free in Christ. So it just seems like naturally this is even part of the thing they're, they're dealing with. So they've written to Paul to say, what do you think is going on? What is the proper thing to do? So that's what we're going to look at today. In fact, I titled the sermon, The Principle of Headship. Uh, maybe you've noticed I'm big on principles. That's what Paul does. He takes out the principle that we base our life on. It's a divinely revealed principle right? Just like we saw with Christian liberty. The principle of headship is a divinely revealed uh, principle, and Paul starts there, and then he's going to go into how that affects the cultural situation. So let's, let's open in prayer. Let's just give our hearts to the Lord and pray that he would bless our time, and we'll dig into the passage before us. God, thank you so much for your word, and we do thank you that we have your word. Lord, without it, it is, it is obvious we would be completely lost we, we would not know what to do about any of these issues. We'd be like a man thrown and tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea, Lord, in this culture. But, Lord, we know that we can stay firmly anchored 
because of your word and those divine principles that we find within your word. And so, Lord, today, I know that we are talking about a difficult subject. This is going to be a hard pill for some people to swallow. But, Lord, it's truth. And, Lord, I, I know that you want us uh, to align with your truth because, Lord, you bless us in that path. When we fully commit to how you want things done, Lord, that is the path of blessing. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd open up our hearts to your Spirit's leading, Lord, that we might understand your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before Paul launched into his answer, he gives them a spiritual commendation. He takes a moment to praise them, which is a wise thing to do, right? Before you get into some really difficult stuff, it's a good idea to praise them. And you know what? I'm going to follow Paul's lead, and I'm going to do the same thing. Because I just want to say that, that I love our church, and I'm incredibly, incredibly thankful for each and every one of you. Um, you know, even coming out of some difficult things, you know, happening at, at, at Cornwall Street, and I, it just reminded me how thankful I am for our people. But uh, I was just reminded again of how uh, gracious and loving our church is, because this week, uh, we were given a surprise from the church. And I think most of you know this, but uh, people pitched in to uh, send me and the family away for a week to the coast once the lockdown lifts. It's at the end of April to just have a break because they just saw that there were difficult things that were taking place and we were going through. And, and I just want to say what an incredibly thoughtful and loving thing to do. And, and while I can't see every one of you and thank you in person, I just want to thank you for, for that gift of, of love. Uh, we feel, well, we were just so overwhelmed and so blessed uh, to hear that, and, uh, and we, we love you. So thank you for, for doing that for us. Um, Paul loves his church as well. Paul loves the people in Corinth, and it may not sound like it sometimes, right? It sounds like he's sort of dealing with them in, in some harsh ways uh, sometimes, but not here. As he's getting to, this is a difficult situation. And so he begins with praise. Notice what he says in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren that you remember me in all things and keep the, the traditions just as I delivered them uh, to you. Uh, what he's praising that, well, two things he's praising them for. One is that they, they continually remember him. Like even the fact that they've written him to ask about things is a good thing, right? They're thinking, Paul, you know, you taught us, you know, you, we, maybe we're getting off track. Could you, could you remind us of, of things? And remember, Paul had just commanded them to imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? That's the harder thing to do. Um, and so if he were to say, well, you're not imitating me, that's probably true. They probably weren't so much imitating me as he imitated Christ, but, but they were remembering him. They were remembering him. It's certainly way easier to, uh, uh, you know, remember something that, that has been taught than to practice something that has been taught, right? And so he is at least, uh, you know, uh, praising them for that. You know, at least you have remembered me and you reach out and you ask about these things. But the second thing he praises them for is because... They have been keeping the traditions that he delivered to them. Now, this is an important word. This will help you out. Traditions is paradosis. Paradosis. It means that which is passed along by teaching. It is tradition by instruction or even precept. The, the substance of teaching. What Paul is saying is that he, they have kept to the teachings that he has passed on. You see it used in both the positive and negative in Scripture. Uh, in the negative, it's usually referring to man-made ideas, man-made practices, particularly when the Pharisees are coming against Jesus. Even on one occasion, they accused Jesus' disciples of transgressing the tra tradition of the elders. You remember that? They're just talking about the practices of the elders. They're not talking about, you know, God's word, but all the extra biblical stuff they were adding on to their lives. Negatively, we see that word used that way, but positively, we see it used here. We also see it used in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. I have it for you. It says this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. You see that? That's the same word, traditions, the teaching. Into the Thessalonians, he, he was reminding them to, to, to keep to that word, right? That they even gave them orally, verbally or even that was written in their epistle to them. He uses it later in chapter 3, verse 6 as well. So here he's praising them for their strengths, really, their strengths before he uh, corrects the weaknesses, which is a wise thing to do. And so that really brings us to our first point here, and this is the principle of headship. I know I titled it that, but that's really actually coming out of verse 3. The principle of headship is found in verse 3. Let's read it. 
But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is the divine principle from which Paul will base his entire argument on. And that's why he begins with the phrase, but I want you to know. It's probably something he didn't really teach in depth to the Corinthians before, but obviously he finds very, very important. So he highlights, I want you to know. I want you to understand this. Understand what? Look at it again. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. This principle of authority and submission, when you're talking about heads and headship, pervades the entire universe. This is not specific to the church. Look what it says. Every man, right? Every man. So in man's relationship to man, when you look at human beings' relationship to human beings, there's a submission and authority. When you look at man's relationship to God, there's submission and authority. And when you look at God's relationship to God, Jesus to, to God the Father, there's submission and authority. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He presents the principle of submission of, of, of women to, to men against the greater truth of submission of all men to Christ and of Christ to God. So let's look at all three of these things. Let's just break it down one at a time in the order that they come to us. The first is this. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. Let me ask you, is that true? Is it true that Christ is the head of every man? Well, you look at this and go, well, it's true that he's the head of the church, right? We know he's the head of the church. It's all over scripture. I'll give you a couple of them, but Colossians 1.18 says, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus is the head of his church. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, he speaks about Christ being the head of the church is Ephesians 14 and Ephesians 5.23. All those verses say that Christ is the head. And that is true. He is. But what is meant by head? Well, look at this word. Head is kephale. Kephale. And it means anything supreme. You can use the word chief or master or lord. Anything supreme. Christ is supreme. He is the lord of the church. He is the head of the church. And it works even well with that analogy of the human body, right? The church is a living organism, like a, like a body has many parts, but Christ is the head of that body. Now, notice what this verse says it, and doesn't say. It doesn't say that he is the head of every man in the church. We just looked at why that's true. He is the head of the church, but the verse we're looking at says that he is the head of every man. Every man, not just in the church, but every man everywhere. Now that you might be looking at, well, how can that be? Because as I look around, I don't see Christ being the head of every man, but it doesn't matter. He is. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on what? Earth. Jesus has all authority. It doesn't matter that much uh, if a man recognizes that authority, Jesus still has it, right? He has been given all authority. Let me show you a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's speaking of Jesus' feet. Everything. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left, note it, nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Here's what he's saying, right? Everything has put, been put under subjection to Christ under his feet. There's been nothing left but... As we look around, we don't yet see all the things put under his feet visibly. Like, I see people rejecting the authority of Christ today. But that does not mean that they have not been put under the authority of Christ. Or that he doesn't have the authority. He absolutely does. Because all things have been put under his feet. There's nothing that's not put under subjection to Christ. And that's why one day we talk about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing from Philippians 2.10, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't say in the church. It says what? Every knee should bow. Every tongue confess. There will be a day where there will 
be every single person confessing that authority. Jesus, you have that authority. All things have been put under subjection to Christ. He is the head of every man. Do you see that? This is not about the church. This is about submission to authority, and Christ has it. And he has it over all created beings, men and women. Secondly, notice, the head of woman is man. The head of every woman is man. Now, Paul does not use the terms here, husbands and wives, like he does elsewhere, right? When he's speaking to husbands and wives, he uses words husbands and wives in Ephesians 5.22 and in Colossians 3.18, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Here he says that, that the, the man is the head of the woman. That's, that's really simply what he's saying. He's saying that the principle of submission and authority between men and women extends beyond marriage, extends beyond the family. It extends into all aspects of society. Now listen, I know that sounds wrong to people. Listen, that's not wrong because of God's design. Why does that sound wrong to us? Why does it sound wrong to us? Because of our culture, right? That's why that sounds wrong. Because our culture says something different. Our culture says, well, that, what, how, how horrible. How could you say such a thing, right? Sadly, listen, sadly, there will be a day, and really it's already entering the church, where when a pastor gets up and says that marriage is to be between a man and a woman only, that will sound wrong. Most of the church will go, I cannot believe a pastor actually said that. That day is, is, is coming, and it's in a lot of churches. That's what happened here. Our culture has so redefined the roles of men and women that to say something like that sounds like you, you, you hate women, right? Like God hates women. I can't believe they would say man has authority over a woman. I have not been looking forward to getting to this passage because I'm not really in favor of driving around all week ducking. Like, look at <laughs> they're after me now. Um, listen, it is, this is what happens here. When this begins to sound wrong, it's because worldliness has crept into the church. Worldliness has crept into the church. And worldly Christians always trying to find ways to justify their worldliness. That's the truth of it. Now, let me reiterate what I said at the beginning. As far as personal worth goes and abilities and essence and spirituality and all of those things, Paul makes no distinction. Men and women are completely equal on that. The problem is people can't seem to see that men and women can be equal and yet have been assigned different roles. Does that make sense? They will question, well, why did God place men over women then? Why does he do that? A very simple answer, for order and complementation. That's it. You just think about any business that wants to succeed in this world. You have to have someone in charge. You have to have some sort of semblance of submission and authority or that, that company's not going to run, right? You work for a boss and a supervisor and he has his boss and he has his boss. It goes all the way up to the CEO, right? It's not based on superiority in God's design. It's about order. And God is a God of order. He has created order. You think about an army. I think about it much more because my son is in the army. You know, what, what chaos there would be in a company of men if, if they didn't know who was in charge, right? Right now, how does my son Ryan know whether when he's walking up to someone, whether he should salute him or that man should salute him? How do they know? Because on their shoulder, they got a little patch there that shows them, right? There is a symbol of authority. If you have more stripes than me, well, I'm saluting you. Does that make sense? So you, we, we have this in every area of our life, yet when we bring this into this area, uh, that ruffles our feathers. But listen, this is principle that's meant to be universal. Now, Here's the thing. We don't see it being universal, right? Because this is not accepted in our society. But should we expect a godless, secular society to uh, model this? No, we shouldn't, right? You're, you're not going to see that happening. So where can Christians model this? Well, we can model it in our homes, and we can model it in the church. Uh, a woman in a church, let me talk about a church for a moment, may be the better qualified person to lead. They may be the more intelligent. In fact, they probably are. <laughs> they may be a better speaker and a better theologian, maybe more spiritual. But if she wants to be obedient to God's design, she'll submit to the leadership of men in the church. That, that's just how God designed it. 
That's just what he wanted. As far as a woman's role in the church is concerned, Paul establishes this truth in a few other places. And I think it's important for us to address this so we understand the full picture, even though he's not directly going here today. But as you're going to see, it has nothing to do with culture. This has to do with God's divine principle, his created order, but nothing to do with culture. Let me take you to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're in 1 Corinthians, make a right-hand turn. You're going to go past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy. Okay, so it's after 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. And you'll need to turn there if you can, just because we're going to look at a couple of verses. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, I, you know, I don't know how to beat around the bush on that. It's just very simply laid out for us. It's very clear. It's not confusing. A, a child could read that and understand what he's saying is women can't teach in the church. They can't rule in the church. And this is where people come in and look at this and go, well, that had to be due with the culture of the day. That Paul is probably accommodating Timothy to the culture of the day. I've heard that said to me. And I go, well, really? Because you look at the very next verse, verse 13. Look at it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, that's not cultural. That's creation. Do you see that? It has nothing to do with culture Paul's reason is he goes back to the created order. Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's by God's design. That's the created order of things, and God has a plan and purpose for that, and he wants that to exist in the church. That's, that's all he's saying. In fact, you go to verse 14, look at that. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So it's not only is it due to the created order, first and foremost it is, but also by virtue of the, the weakness that she exhibited in the fall. She was deceived. It's not a result of the fall. Notice that. It was her temptation, her weakness. So Paul begins by stating it's by virtue of creation uh, and, and the woman's weakness in the fall. That's not a cultural uh, thing. Now let's look at another one. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 14, verse 34. Chapter 14, verse 34. Yeah, I get to talk about this again in 1 Corinthians a little bit. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll show you this just before we get there anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. Notice that he says, as the law says. What, what law? Well, God's law. That's all he's saying. It's not creation, even just on its own. It's also law. God established it that way in creation, and he made it law. He established that in the Old Testament. Just read the Old Testament. That's set up and established. It's very clear. And Paul says that is to be the New Testament standard as well in the churches. And women are to remain silent in the church. Now, I should note in this context, we're not in this passage, so it's, I got to tell you, in this context, Paul is dealing with prophesying. He's, and speaking forth God's divine revelation, right? And speaking in tongues. He's talking about spiritual gifts, all right? That's what he's dealing with. He's not saying they can't ever speak, okay? He's talking about in those gifts. So the prophesying is the speaking forth of God's word, word, and it says in the churches, right? And so that's what he's talking about. If you go, in fact, look at the next verse, verse 35. It says that if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now, this doesn't mean a woman cannot literally open her mouth, right, and, and speak in church. She can get up and give a testimony. She can make announcements and be participatory in, in worship and in prayer. What's the context? Teaching. Because why? He says a woman should go learn from her what? Husband. Now, listen, I love to read this in premarital counseling as well to the husbands. I take them right to this verse and I say, okay, here's what it says, right? Now, I go to the men. I said, now you, you heard what it says. They're going to come to you with questions. And I tell the men, you need to help your wives fulfill their God-given roles, right? If their role is to submit to your leading and to come to you with questions, then you better be prepared with the answers, right? The idea is like, I push them to spiritual leadership in the home because they're to provide that. And isn't it so sad today? You see mostly... Women in churches, right? Where have all the men gone? 
right? They're, they're gone. That's why even women have resorted to leading churches. You see female pastors and vicars today because the men aren't there. It's sad. But actually, the men were supposed to be the ones that would lead spiritually. Or they're the ones supposed to have the answer. And when they don't, boy, you make a relationship difficult. You, you make it hard for your, your wife if you're coming with the questions and you want to learn and you want to grow and they're completely indifferent. They couldn't care about church, couldn't care about God's word. That is, that is hard. But can I just say, women, still with that, you can't take matters into your own hands. You can't say, well, they're not doing it, so I'm going to do it. Right? We can never disobey God's word because, because of, of some noble reason. Right? We can't, well, it's, it's good because there should be somebody leading. He says, no, no, you, you shouldn't. They're to be, to be silent. And some, again, look at this passage, and again, they say, well, that's cultural again, right? Or they'll say, that's Paul's opinion, because remember, he had a low view of women. And again, I would say, really? Because look at verse 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. That's not cultural. That's not Paul's opinion. It has nothing to do with those things. In fact, that hard verse, he says, this is the commandment of the Lord. And again, it has nothing to do with making one lesser than the other. We are equal. In fact, let me just tell you, men that are married, you, we're going to look at the created order next week, but you have been given a helper, right? God looked at the man and said, that, that creation is going to need some help, right? And so he made a suitable helper. And when we reject the help, we're really putting ourselves in a bad position, right? He, he saw you needed help, and you need to utilize the help. Now, I can tell you that, that I utilize the help. I, I am constantly in conference with my wife about things. I don't try to just do things on my own, right? I don't go, well, I'm leading, I'm making the decision, I'm wearing the... No, you know, you, you, we work together. We're, we're a companion. We're a team. We're one in the flesh and in, the, in, the, in terms of uh, the marriage, right? The same goes with the leadership of the church, right? We have godly men leading the church. And I no doubt they're talking to their wives about some of the hard things we're going through. We're, we're listening to the advice of our wives. We're talking those things through, right? But we have men, trustees, male trustees leading. But you know that we have a secretary who is a female, right? Lisa Gilmore. And she is at every one of those meetings. She will tell you. She's at every one of those meetings. Now listen, none of us tell her to keep silent. We don't say, hey, women are to be silent, right? In fact, in fact, we've told her the opposite. We said, we, I want your opinion. I want your view. Even over the last few weeks, Lisa has had such helpful insight into things because men, sometimes we can be tunnel vision or maybe heavy handed on things. And yet her advice to sort of soften some things has been so valuable to me. I would be a fool to reject that. I do not look at women being lesser. I, I value that. I, I seek that. That is the idea there. We work together while men might be the visible leadership of the church and ultimately are the ones responsible. We don't demean women. I, I, no, not at all. In fact, we value uh, the women's contribution to, to everything. So that, I know that's a, a hard section. We're going to talk more about it in, in a bit, but let's move on to the next one. We're one out of time today. The third thing he points out, going back to our passage, go back to 1 Corinthians 11, is that the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Well, for anyone who has studied the Gospels, and the, the Gospel of John in particular, uh, as we have done, Jesus' submission to the Father is, is, uh, is abundantly clear, right? We know that there is submission in the Godhead. That boggles our mind. We don't know how that can be, right? We got one God, yet three persons in this God, and within that, we have this, this submission and authority happening. How does that work? Well, it's, I don't know. But Jesus says it's true. And I'll just remind you of some of the places that he said that. In John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Right? That's Jesus. I'm not here to do my work. I'm here to finish his work, to do his will. I've submitted to his will. In John chapter 5, verse 30, he said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. It's, it's, I, I've submitted my will to the will of the Father. I don't do it. I do it for the Father. John 6, 38. For I've come down from heaven, <clears throat> not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
You think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way to the cross and, you know, that human weakness coming in. He didn't want to go to the cross and he prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Your, your will be done. That's submission and authority and it's in the Godhead. Unbelievable. Now listen, what is that authority based on? It's based on love. There is love in the Godhead. Right? God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus submitted to the Father not out of compulsion, but out of love. Out of love. Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. Men in general and husbands in particular are to are called to lead with that same example, to lead in love. In Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the model, right? Love, lead in love. Men are to not to use tyranny, but to exercise humble servant leadership. That's the idea. Humble servant leadership. Your trustees are humble servant leaders. All of them are serving in ministries in the church. None of them get paid for that, right? And I, I mean beyond their role of trustees, right? They're all in different ministries and rooted and in resolved and in children's ministry. That's an example of humble servant leadership. No one lords over anyone with any kind of authority. They're serving the church, right? That's the idea here. So, so, so why is this all so important, right? Why is it so important to know that every man is to be under the headship of Christ and every woman under the headship of man and, and that Christ was under the, the headship, if you will, of, of God? This is so important because Paul has not put these separately. He has tied them together. In fact, they're inseparably linked, right? You cannot reject one without the other. You cannot look at that second one and reject the submission of women to men without rejecting Christ's submission to the Father or man's submission to Christ. You can't. You either have to reject them all or you have to accept them all. We don't get to pick which parts of the Bible that we want to believe. Oh, I like those two, but I don't like that one. So the principle of headship here is clearly established at the beginning. And what Paul now does, and we'll end with this, is he takes the overriding governing principle and he applies it to the, the cultural situation that had developed in, in Corinth, okay? This is the application of headship, point two. So the application of headship. Look at verse four. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. All right, so first here, we're looking at the men as they pray and they prophesy. And what's that? Well, praying is simple, isn't it? It's talking to God about people, right? We talk to him about us, ourselves, others, right? Praying, talking to God about people. What's prophesying? It's the opposite. It's talking to, to people about God. That, that's what that is, right? It's speaking forth divine revelation. And what's Paul say here? He says to the men, do it with your head uncovered, because if, if you, you do it with your head covered, you dishonor your head. Now let's look at the women here, and then we'll put these together. Look at verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. All right, so for women to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered is a dishonor. He says you need to be covered. So here, he's put these parallel together. Men, pray and prophesy with your head uncovered, but women, do it with your head covered. All right, let me give a note here and then we'll move on. Some, of, some people jump right away on this and say, ah, here it is, see this? Women can teach in the church. It says every woman who prays or prophesies. There it is. Listen, uh, women can pray and prophesy. No one ever said that they can't. Women can evangelize in public and men can be present. They can evangelize to a man, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. She can pray uh, with and, and for others, believers, non-believers, men, women. She can teach other women. She can teach other children in the church. Right? But what's Paul talking about? The praying and prophesying that Paul has in mind here is outside the church. He hasn't brought this discussion in the church. This is the public example of submission in society. That's what he's talking about. And we know this because of a couple reasons. But the first is that Paul has not added the modifier in the church. In fact, he's been talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols in the temple and then eating meat sacrificed to idols in someone's home, right? And in your own home. He hasn't been talking about actions in the church at all. Why do we think he's jumped 
to the, uh, the church meeting here. No, what he's done is he's brought to us a universal principle. And it's not something that's to be applied only in the church. In addition to that, Paul tells us when he begins to address the church meeting. And guess what? He does it in this chapter, in verse 17. Look at it, verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You see that? Okay, we're not there yet, but, but the beginning of today, he said, oh, I want to praise you first, right? He wanted to offer praise. But in there, now, when I'm going to give you these instructions, I'm not going to begin with praise, because you're coming together, not for the better, but for the worse. You're coming together. That's the church meeting. In fact, he says it in verse 18. For first of all, when you come together as a church, there it is, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Do you see that? So Paul, beginning in verse 17, he's going to start talking about the Lord's Supper and the misconduct there. Then he begins talking about the church, and he even tells us there he's talking about the church. So he's not talking about church meetings here at all. Not at all. In fact, he's using a universal principle, the principle of submission. Now, is the issue of head coverings for men and women, is that universal? No, that's cultural, okay? Do you see the difference, okay? You have to take the universal principle there and then go, okay, how does this apply within the culture? And within the culture, you had this head covering thing. Let me give you an example. The Jews have reversed it, right? The Jews reversed it. It was the men who prayed with their heads covered. They still do that today, right? The yamokas, right? They wear those and they, they kind of bob their head and they, they, they have to wear that hat when they pray. They believe the men wear the head coverings. And that was even back then, right? If they were to read uh, the Torah, read the scripture, they had their head covered for that. And you know what? Paul never writes anywhere to correct that. He never writes to the Jews or to the Romans, hey, take your hats off, guys. He never says that. They always wore them when they were reading God's word, but he never wrote to correct that. Why? Because that was the custom for the Jews. You see what I'm saying? That, that's okay. But here, this is a specific issue to the Corinthian situation, okay? The Corinthian here, for a woman, a, a sign of modesty and a sign of submission was to wear a veil, right? Some kind of a head covering, something they could pull down over there. And these women were throwing away their veils in the name of equality. And some were going even so far as to shave their heads completely or down to, to look like a man's there. And so for a man in that culture to wear a head covering while praying or prophesying would sort of dishonor him because he sort of re refers to a reversal of roles there, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to put the head covering on now. For a woman to do that, it, it showed a lack of submission. Now, the idea here is how do we apply this here, is that we got to accommodate ourselves to the culture in terms of the custom of submission. How is that seen in our culture? We don't wear, we don't wear head coverings today, right? Some look at this go, oh, I knew it. Women need to wear hats. And for years, women wore hats, right, to church. And they got bigger and bigger, and then soon no one could see the pulpit, so they stopped wearing them. But, you know, they, they had hats to church because that was part of it. They would look at this and go, oh, you know, but that's not our custom today. Women, you don't have to wear a hat, right? That, that's not our sign of submission uh, today. What is it? What is culturally relevant today? You guys, I thought long and hard. It's very difficult to determine that today. I, I don't know. Because we've blurred the line so much, right, between men and women. I mean, everyone looks the same even now. It's hard to say. Uh, some even took these passages so far as to say that, you know, uh, that, um, that uh, the, the women could never wear, like, trousers, right? They had to wear dresses because they couldn't sort of look like a man, but you'd have to look at this and go, well, hold on, the men wore dresses back then, right? They were wearing these long flowing robes, so you can't even do that, right? The, the idea is here, there's got to be this sort of separation. The line is all blurred today. It's really hard to see. And Paul is going to give an argument next week, we won't be to it today, from nature, right? In terms of the norm, the normative of women having long hair and men having a short hair. But we don't even have that today, right? It's hard to even determine, you know, that. And so that's why Paul says to the women who don't cover their heads, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved, okay? And, and, and if she doesn't cover her head, it's just as bad if she had her uh, shaved her head. And, and some women were, were doing that. So look at this. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 5 again. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. That's what he's saying, okay? 
But look at verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. All right? Let her be covered. Now, I know it sounds pretty um, severe looking at that, but um, this is what he's saying, right? In that day, only uh, a prostitute or an extreme feminist would, would shave their head like that. Now, in fact, you can find this from some of the ancient um, documents like the Talmud, which is the primary source of Jewish religious law, looked really unfavorably upon women who shaved their heads um, and, and called them extremely ugly, like they've lost the glory. Uh, the early church father, Chrysostom, recorded that women who were guilty of adultery, they had their sh heads shaved, and then they were marked as, as prostitutes. It was just that was the culture, and that's part of point, Paul's point here, is that if you're not willing to look like a prostitute or a feminist, right, go, go all the way and shave your head, then, then you should probably not be praying and prophesying with your head uncovered. You should probably, you probably should wear that veil. That's what he's saying. But what's the line today? How can we relate this head covering thing today? How can submission be demonstrated in our society that is just so far off? It's, it's very difficult. I think for Christians who want to live godly lives and adhere to God's design, we do need to try to maintain the things that make us distinct as men and women. But aren't they trying to erode that completely today? Right? I mean, it's not even provable by science anymore, apparently, right? You can just determine if you're one sex or the other. It's all being rubbed out today. And let me just tell you, that is not by God's design. That, that is by Satan. How can we model this today? Christians, we model it in our homes, model it in our church. We should fight to maintain those distinctions, to model authority, submission according to God's design, because when we do, we get God's blessing. You know, women, I would say, how do you talk to your husbands in public, right, and in a home? Right? How, how, are we, how do you relate uh, to them, right? Are you, are, do you have a gentle spirit around them and a submissive spirit and tone when you speak uh, to them? What about uh, men? Are you heavy-handed and authoritative with your wives, right? That is not, that is not the balance that we have either. How is that to look in the, in the home, right? It's a companionship. It's a relationship, right? And we should understand that our roles are meant to complement one another. It's one of the things I said early on. God's designed this so out of order, so things would function well, but also to be complementary, right? That we work together. We can't all be leading, right? You heard that phrase, too many cooks in the kitchen? We can't, we can't have that. Somebody has to be the person responsible. And let me just say, what God is saying is that men, particularly in a marriage and in a home, you're going to be the one held responsible. Right? If the family goes in a wreck and stuff, it's not going to be the wife's fault. It's going to be you. You'll be held responsible. That began with the fall as well. Yeah, the woman was deceived, but who was held responsible for the sin? Adam was, right? Adam was. For what? By one man's disobedience, sin and death entered the world. That was Adam. So men, let's just see, how are we, how are we behaving with our wives? How are we modeling that, that leadership? in the way that Christ has called us to lead in love, right? And women the same. The second thing I would say, we should fight to maintain that in the churches. There are too many churches today that have, that have gone the other way. I think they've allowed the, church, the culture to dictate what the church should do. Worldliness has crept into the church, and so you have female pastors and teachers and all those things. And, and again, not that they're not gifted. I've heard that argument. Oh, but have you heard this woman preach? Like, I'm not saying they can't preach good. I'm just saying it's not God's design. And it goes against God's will. So they may be able to preach, but they're not reading Scripture. You have to be, we have to be making sure that, that we align ourselves with God's design for things. And when we do that obediently, He really does bless us. And that's what we want, right? We want God's blessing in our lives, and we certainly want His blessing in a church. Next week, and I know it's Mother's Day, and, and trust me, you know, I was looking ahead and I knew what, you know, this, this topic was coming up and I was counting it down. I said, oh, I hope it doesn't end on Mother's Day. And I looked like, oh, good, it's, it's one week before. But as I began to study this and prepare, I realized there's no way I can do this passage justice in just one week. I have to split it up. And so next week, we finished the topic. But you know what? God has so orchestrated how sermons land all year long that I have to trust the Holy Spirit on that. And I actually think it's going to be good because what Paul does is he defends the, the, the whole point, but then he harmonizes it all. Like 
uh, in terms of what woman's role is and and the glory that is associated with that role. And I think that's going to be appropriate for Mother's Day. So don't, you know, if this was a bad taste in your mouth, don't, don't give up now. Hang on. Join us next week and we'll continue this subject. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you so much for your word. And uh, Lord, I just, uh, I trust your spirit to work in the hearts of your people. This is not uh, an easy topic to discuss these days. Um, It just doesn't ring true because of what culture dictates so much in our world today is is, uh, dictated by the culture. What is right and, and wrong, but Lord, we can never... We can never make that the standard. We have to make your word the standard, Lord, the standard of truth. And Lord, I thank you for so making it so abundantly clear uh, for us today. And Lord, I just pray your blessing upon us and, and the week to come, Lord, as some might be wrestling with this topic, Lord, that you would just work in our hearts. Your Holy Spirit is there to teach us and to illuminate truth to us, to convict us of sin even, Lord. And I just, I just pray that, Lord, you would do your work And Lord, would you prepare us next week to come together physically, looking forward to being with everyone and uh, Lord, being able to celebrate our our mothers, celebrate our women, Lord. And I I just uh, pray that you would just be glorified in all that is said and done today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.